as we move along our year as a church, Easter is one of our markers. Christmas would be another one of those markers as we sort of move along our year together as a church. They are these points in our year of sort of culmination and points of celebration. So we build up to them, we build up to Easter, we, we build up to Christmas, and then as a church we, we make a big deal of them, we, we make the most of them, and then we begin building up to the next. And all of us, if you think about it, whether we are Christians or not, we have these sort of markers in our year. We have these points of culmination and celebration. Most people spend their year counting down to one thing after another. Maybe you're a student and you are counting down to the end of a quarter or the end of a semester. Or maybe it is counting down your work until you have a vacation. Maybe it is counting down and moving on from one national holiday to another. Maybe it is counting down to the beginning or the end of different professional sports seasons. We all have these ways that we sort of mark our years. And Christians... Christians might as well have Jesus determine those yearly hash marks. Those markers that we have throughout our year. It's good, I think. And it's right for Jesus to determine those points throughout your year that you build up to, make a big deal of, and build traditions around so that memories are attached to them and so that memories are attached to them and those celebrations and even more importantly what those days and celebrations signify it's good to have Jesus determine your markers throughout the year we build up and we celebrate and then we clean up and then we begin preparing for the next so Easter, for us as a church, is a marker that we're hitting today. Easter, which is remembering and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, and this is very important, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every Sunday. Every Sunday is a celebration that Jesus was raised from the dead. But today, in particular, we celebrate this. So here's what we mean by the resurrection. Here's what we mean by the resurrection. Historically, Jesus of Nazareth was killed on a Friday afternoon and he was buried in a tomb by Friday evening. He was buried in a tomb on Friday evening. And the tomb was 
empty on a Sunday morning. And the tomb was not empty on a Sunday morning because his body had been moved or because his body had been hidden or because his body had been stolen. It was empty because he walked out. There was no body in that tomb, not because the body was taken, but because the body left the tomb. The body that was dead on Friday afternoon and buried on Friday evening and in the tomb all day Saturday and into the morning of Sunday, and then that body left the tomb. So that's a very big deal, if it's true. So this morning, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And consider the resurrection of Jesus. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Would you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time to celebrate in a unique way the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to celebrate well, to think well, to worship you in spirit and in truth this day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you haven't turned there already, would you please turn there? If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There should be a Bible on, underneath the seat in front of you. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we are. And in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see Paul is reminding his readers of something. So what is it? Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Paul is reminding his readers of something what is he reminding them of? Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what is Paul reminding his readers of? Or this morning for us, as we read 1 Corinthians 15. What is Paul reminding us of? He's reminding us of the gospel. He is reminding us of the gospel. He is reminding us of the good news. He preached it to these Corinthians, to these people in Corinth before, and he's preaching it to them again. He's reminding them of it. It is a big deal. It's not something you preach once. It's something you preach over and over again. It's something that we don't just hear one and done. It's something we need to be reminded of over and over again. We're no different. They were no different. He reminds them of the gospel. And they, verse 2, what did they do with this gospel? They received it, and they stand in it, and they are being saved by it. So the gospel is news you receive or believe in. The gospel is not only news that you receive 
That's not different from a lot of news. It is also news you stand in. It is not only news that you receive and stand in, it is news that saves you. So this gospel news, this good news that Paul is talking about, reminding them of, reminding us of, is, fair to say, unlike any other news. You receive it, you stand in it, and you are saved by it. So what is this good news according to Paul? What is the good news? How does he summarize it here? Look at verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now here it is. Here's Paul's summary of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So according to Paul, what is the gospel? He says, Christ died for our sins. And was buried. And was raised on the third day. That is the good news, Paul says. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried. And Jesus was raised on the third day. There are, as I see it, in those brief words, in that brief summary... There are four claims that Paul makes. There are four claims, and two of them are, we could call them ordinary claims, and two of them are extraordinary claims. So two of them are believable, and two of them are unbelievable. Two of them are plausible, and two of them are implausible. Two of them are conceivable, and two of them are inconceivable. Two of them are far-fetched claims that... Paul makes. They are hard to believe. They are hard to swallow claims. So look at that with me. I mean, that Jesus died and was buried is no big deal. That is no big deal. Those are two ordinary claims. Jesus died and was buried. You should say to that, big deal. I know a lot of people that died and they're buried. There's nothing extraordinary about that. Jesus died and was buried. But what about these two other claims Paul makes? That Jesus died for our sins. And what about this claim? Jesus was raised on the third day. Those are two extraordinary claims. Everyone dies. But who dies for the sins of people? Paul says Jesus died for our sins. Everybody dies, but who comes back to life after dying? Jesus was raised on the third day. So those are the two extraordinary claims that Paul is making. And they actually are connected to one another. They relate to one another in this way. 
the latter proves the former. The second claim, Jesus was raised on the third day, proves the first claim that Jesus died for our sins. In other words, if this is true, if Jesus was raised on the third day, that means his death was for whatever he says his death was for. If he died and was resurrected, then whatever he said his death was for, that's what his death was for because no one rises from the dead. So if you beat death, you get to say what your death did because it didn't kill you. And it kills everyone. And what did Jesus say? He came to die for the sins of his people. Let's make sure we understand what Paul means by raised on the third day. Make sure we understand. Maybe you haven't heard this before. He's talking about the resurrection. He's using that word and that term synonymously, right? He was raised on the third day. The resurrection. That's what we're celebrating. So what is it? Let's break it down. Human beings, including Jesus, Hebrews 2.17, he was made like us in every way. Human beings, including Jesus, are, here's what the Bible teaches, we are embodied souls. Do you ever wonder what you are? That's what you are. You are an embodied soul. So there's more to you than a body, and there's more to you than a soul. You're not just a soul. You're not just a body. When God created you, when he knit you together, he didn't just knit your body together. He knit your soul together. And you are sitting here today. You are both and. And the body is important and the soul is important. That makes you who you are because you are an embodied soul. And there's no separating them. There is no separating your soul from your body. There is no such thing as an out-of-body experience. Now, biblically speaking, God's truth won't allow for that. There is no separating your soul from your body until death. This is what death is. Death is not just the giving out of of your body. It's not just the end of, of your body. Death is, and it most likely will be for every one of you, death is the, the separation of your body and soul. And there is no separation of your body and soul until that day comes. And when that day comes, and you, what we call, die, your soul will be separated from your body. Upon your death, your body and your soul will be split up. Your body will go into the ground, or 
something else. Your body will go into the ground and your soul will go either where Jesus is or where Jesus isn't. That's about as much as I can give you. And we have glimpses of this in the Bible, like in Luke chapter 16, where there's a poor man and a rich man. They die, their bodies are in the ground. One soul is with God, with Abraham. Another soul is in what's called Hades, this place of torment. And they are allowed to see one another. We have scriptures like Hebrews 9.27, Revelation 20.13, Luke 23.43, 2 Corinthians 5.8, Philippians 1.21, and others that help us to understand this as best we can. That you are an embodied soul. And when you die, your body and your soul will be separated. And your soul will immediately either go to be with God or without God. That is life after death. And that is not resurrection. Resurrection is life after life after death. Resurrection is life after life after death. Resurrection, here's what resurrection is. Resurrection is the reuniting of the body and the soul. That is resurrection. So resurrection, think about it, is the reversal of death. If if, if death is the separation of the soul and body, resurrection reunites the soul and the body Check this out. Never to be separated again. Eternally living body and soul. And that's what happened to Jesus. That is what happened to Jesus. He died, was buried. His soul and his body were separated. He was resurrected. His body and soul were reunited. And then his body got up. And walked out of the tomb. That is what Paul means when he says, as part of the good news, that Jesus, after he was dead and buried, was raised on the third day. And that's an extraordinary claim. One of two extraordinary claims. Before we move on to the second claim, we should ask ourselves about that first claim Did that really happen? Did that really happen? That might be the most important question you ever ask. Did did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if that's true, if that's true, then, then that means that Jesus, his death meant exactly what he said his death meant. But if he what if he didn't rise from the dead? What if, his, what if his body, what if his dust is still in the ground today? Paul actually talks about that later in 1 Corinthians 15. He says things like this. Okay, if, if the resurrection did not happen, then, verse 14, his own preaching, Paul's own preaching is in vain. 
There's no point to what he's doing. And his faith and our faith, Paul says, it's in vain. There's no point to it if Jesus was not actually resurrected. Verse 15, we are, as Christians, that means we're misrepresenting God. And verse 19, our own faith is futile. It means if Jesus did not rise from the dead, it means that you and I, verse 19, we are still dead in our sins. It means, according to Paul, if this did not happen, that Christians are in hell right now who have died. Paul says. And he says in verse 19 that Christians, if this did not happen, are the most self-deluded, pitiful people on the planet. Building their lives around something that didn't actually happen. So again, this is a good question. Did it really happen? Was Jesus really raised from the dead? Of course, there is a lot of compelling evidence. There's so many things we could talk about. The fact that his resurrection was confirmed by some of his fiercest enemies. The fact that his tomb was easy to find and therefore disprove anything. His tomb was not enshrined like virtually every other tomb of any religious leader who had died. Because the tomb meant nothing to Christians because it was empty. The day of worship was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Every single apostle died claiming that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. There's all kinds of compelling evidence that Jesus raised from the dead. But let's listen to Paul's. Here's Paul's evidence. It's what he offers next in verses 5 through 8. And that he, verse 5, that's he, Jesus, after he was resurrected, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So this is Paul's stated evidence, and it's good evidence. People saw him. He was seen. He was seen by Paul. Paul, who is writing this and who will die for this, saw him. Remember on the road to Damascus. He saw the risen Christ. And others saw Jesus, Paul tells us. Hundreds. Did you read that? Hundreds of people saw Jesus. And and they are, Paul makes a point of saying this, they are still alive. Why does he say that? Go ask them. This was written, Paul wrote this, in the first century while all these witnesses were still alive. So maybe you make a case if this is written, you know, centuries later about something that happened centuries before. Oh, yeah, didn't you know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, that's all good and well, but that's quite a leap of faith. You know, there's no more witnesses around. There were hundreds of witnesses. Paul makes a note of that. They're still alive. You can go and ask them. I'm not making this up. They're not making that up. Hundreds of people aren't making it up. We're not all dying for a trick that we're playing on people. We're not all dying because we're self-deluded and we want to build a religion and a name for ourselves. We're dying because we believe that it's true. We believe that it's true because we saw Jesus. He really was raised from 
the dead. Now, I find the most compelling evidence in what Paul just told me was the fact that one man in particular saw the resurrected Jesus. It was James. Well, who is James? Why is he important here? James was the brother of Jesus. And it seems pretty clear as you read the gospel accounts that while Jesus was alive, James was not a believer. He did not believe that Jesus was God. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He did not believe that he was the Messiah, the Rescuer, the Redeemer sent from God. Well, James becomes an apostle. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So he becomes a Christian and a, and a pastor. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Jesus. Or, or let me ask you that another way. What would it take for a brother to worship his brother as God? So you're with me. I'm the, by God's grace, I'm the father of five boys. I'll tell you what. They do not worship one another. I'm thinking, what would it take for one of my boys to worship his brother? And it would take a lot more than his brother saying, I'm God. I'd get him something else, but not worship. I mean, what is this is compelling evidence. You've got to be kidding me. James, the brother of Jesus, who was not a believer while Jesus was alive, ends up becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem. His own brother accepted that Jesus was God. I can't imagine that moment when James realized that. No wonder he never got in trouble. No wonder he got straight A's. No wonder he made every shot. Jesus was raised from the dead. This claim that Paul is making is true. He was dead in the tomb. He was, he was dead in the tomb. This, this didn't mean something different for Jesus than it means for us when we die. His, the brain activity stopped. His heart stopped beating. The color with, withdrew from his face and from his body. Blood stopped pumping throughout his system. No part of his body moved anymore. He began to grow stiff and cold. He was really dead. His body was lifeless. And then on Sunday morning, there was a brainwave. Think about this with me. Died Friday afternoon, Sunday morning, 
He's a corpse in a tomb. For those of you who have seen people after they've died, it's quite a sight, isn't it? There's never been any question in my mind that that person was an embodied soul and their soul is gone. This is Jesus in the tomb. And on Sunday morning, his heart begins to beat. And blood starts pumping through his body. Color returns to his face. His, his eyes start rolling around. And he sits up. He opens his mouth and takes in air again. His breath had been held for three days. Technically, 72 hours-ish. I'm sorry, 36 hours-ish. He stands up, and he walked out of the tomb. This claim is true. This claim that Paul makes is true. And he knows it. Jesus was raised on the third day. So now, what about the other extraordinary claim that Paul makes? That was one, that he was raised on the third day. Paul tells us that the death of Jesus was for something. And when Paul tells us that the death of Jesus was for something, he is repeating a claim that had been predicted by the prophets long before. It was a claim that John the Baptist had made. It was a claim that Jesus had made. And Paul makes the same claim that Jesus, what does he say? Died for our sins. What does he mean? When Paul says that Jesus died for our sins, Paul means that Jesus suffered the penalty of sin in the place of his people. That's what Paul means. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, you and I are sinners. And you and I what this means have sinned against God and we've sinned against one another and death is the punishment for sin God is he is just and right to punish sin but there is a way to be saved and the way to be saved is by trusting Jesus who, what does Paul say, 
died for our sins. What did Paul mean? Jesus came to suffer the penalty of sin in the place of his people. That's why he died. That means that, according to what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, those Christians that you know and I know who have died, they are not in hell. They are with Jesus. That means that Christians should not be pitied. It means that the world should be pitied. It means that preaching, Paul's preaching, preacher's preaching, my preaching is not in vain. In other words, it is being used by God to produce a result. Preaching is not in vain. It means that faith is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. It means that you and I as Christians are no longer dead in our sins. It means that the gospel is true. Both claims by Paul true. Jesus was raised on the third day, and Jesus died for our sins. In conclusion, let me, in case it's not clear already, let me pull these two great claims together. That Jesus was resurrected, he was raised on the third day, and Jesus died for our sins. Let me pull those two great truths together again. Here's how this works. Personally speaking, I believe Paul. I actually believe this. When I read what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 15, it's why some of you say, even while I'm saying it, things like, Amen. Because you agree with what I'm saying as I'm agreeing with what Paul is saying. I agree with Paul. I believe Paul. I believe that Jesus died for sins. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I'll tell you, that's the only reason I can have any joy, any joy in this life. Without that, even the things that are good and a blessing in this life would not be enjoyable. But it's true. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I told you I was going to connect these truths, that he died for our sins and he was raised from the dead. So this is how it works for me. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that. Because he rose from the dead. That's the connection. I believe he died for my sin. I'll tell you, I don't believe that because Jesus told me that. I don't believe that because my dad told me that growing up. I don't believe that because a lot of books talk about it, that the, the Bible claims that. That's not why I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that Jesus died for my sins because he rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then I would not believe he died for sins. You see how important this is. 
And that's what Paul goes on to say. It's the same thing. Because he rose again. This is the importance of the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, I would not believe he died for my sins. But he did. The resurrection proves Jesus was the Son of God. The resurrection proves Jesus was the Son of God. This is what I meant when I said earlier about these claims that the latter, Jesus was raised from the dead, proves the former, that Jesus died for our sins. Listen to Romans 1.4. And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So how is he declared to be the Son of God? How is Jesus proven to be the Son of God? How do we know that Jesus was the Son of God? By, Romans 1, 4, his resurrection from the dead. It proves that he's God. It proves that he's the Son of God. People don't just rise back to life. The resurrection proves this also. The resurrection proves that the sacrifice Jesus was making was accepted by God. So think about this with me. What if Jesus was not resurrected? What if Jesus only lived a perfect life? And, and what if Jesus only lived a perfect life and died, he said, as a sacrifice for sinners? But he never rose from the dead. How, how would we know his life as a sacrifice was accepted by God? How would I know that God's wrath was actually satisfied? How would I know that it was enough? How do I know that his sacrifice was accepted? How do I know that it was enough? I know because God the Father raised him back to life. Romans 4.25 Who was delivered up, this is Jesus, delivered up, that's killed, for our trespasses and raised, why? For our justification. Or for our salvation. The resurrection God the Father raising God the Son back to life is God the Father saying, finished. It's God the Father saying, accepted. It's God the Father saying, done. It's God the Father saying, complete. It's God the Father saying, satisfied. It's God the Father saying, saved. It's God the Father saying, adopted. When he raises his son back to life. Acts 2.24 God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Think about what that verse just said. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because, listen to how he words this, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Think about that. We, we say or think things like the resurrection is impossible, and this says it would be impossible for Jesus to stay dead. We die because we are sinners, and Jesus was not a sinner. Finally, verses 9 through 11, for Paul said, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. These claims that Paul makes are true. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried. And Jesus was raised on the third day. This was the good news that Paul preached and reminds these people of again and reminds us of again. Their response was to receive this good news, to believe it. To stand on or to stand in this good news, to live by this good news, and to understand that they were saved by this news. Where are you this morning when it comes to this good news? Where do you stand before God? Have you received this good news? Do you believe this good news? Are you standing in this good news? Are you being saved by this good news as you are reminded of it this morning? There is nothing more important for you to do in your life than to determine what you are going to do with Jesus Christ. Will you believe Him or not? Will you trust him or not? Will you love him or not? Will you obey him or not? Will you follow him or not? Will you serve him or not? Now here's the good news for every single one of you. As of right now, as best I can tell, you're all still alive. Pretty sure a couple of you are just sleeping right now. Now, here's why that's good news. If you're alive right now and you're hearing, being reminded of this gospel right now, this is good news. And let me, let me give it to you in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. Let me read you Ecclesiastes 9, 4 through 6. I want you to see if you can figure out why it's good news that you are alive 
right now, that it's really good news if you're alive right now and you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's why this is good news. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. If you're alive, you're joined with all the living. That's what that means. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. When you die, it's over. The opportunity to place your faith in Christ is gone. But you are alive. By God's grace, you are alive. Not only are you alive, you're in a worship service on Easter morning. Not only are you alive and, and in a church on Easter morning, you're alive and in a church and you're hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and you are not yet a dead lion. You're a living dog. And now may be the day of your salvation. Whether you are a Christian here this morning or not, we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may need it for the first time, to recognize it for the first time, to believe it for the first time, and you may need to be reminded again and again and again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this day that we can come together, sing songs to you, pray to you, uh, be with your people, uh, read your word, uh, listen to the preaching of your word, think about your glory, see your glory, taste and see that you are good. Thank you for all of this that you've given us on this morning that you have made. God, we ask that you would move in our hearts. That so many of us, we know we need to change. We've discovered that we cannot change ourselves, and we need you. So would you change us, God? Would you make us more like your son, Jesus? Would you transform us? Will you change the way we think? And we ask this in the great and powerful name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.